Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. At Music Biz, we decided that continuing to provide a forum for our community to come together and support each other was the most important thing we could do. So we started a Zoom chat series called Music Biz Live. Today's episode is the audio from my chat with people from the independent retail sector and with a lawyer and business manager who tell us how to navigate the SBA loans that are now available. Many things are still uncertain, but one thing's for sure, we're all in this together. As always, support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk to the indie retail sector about the issues they're facing due to the COVID crisis. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own business. Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Carrie Colleton of Record Store Day, Andrea Pascal of Sims, Eric Levin of Ames, Glenn Dicker of Red Eye, Mark Kaplan of Citrin Cooperman, and Monica Tashman of Manat. Thanks, you guys, so much for coming. I really am excited for this conversation. I think this is going to be a good one and a really important one. You know, I think everybody knows that the COVID-19 pandemic has hit record stores really, really hard. But record stores have been having a tough time for quite a while. This is like the cherry on the top of the crappy cake. (laughs) (laughs) So Carrie, do you want to start us off with a little recap? I mean, sure. We started in 2007 to notice that a lot of popular culture and press talking about how great record stores used to be. And wasn't it sad that they were all gone? But we knew they weren't all gone. They were just working their way through and pleasing their customers and being really happy with everything they were doing and making people happy. So we started a thing called Record Store Day to celebrate them and to get the word out that record stores were still around. And as you alluded to, there's been just decades of things that could have taken record stores down or made it harder for them. Last year was distribution issues. And now things that like that seem kind of quaint, actually. Mm. But it's very interesting to me that the first businesses to shut down were places like record stores, which is all about human connection and art and emotion and everything that people need right now is sold at record stores and offered at theaters and all these places that were the first to get nixed. So they're doing what they can and adapting and surviving, which they've done for decades. Absolutely. Andrea, do you want to talk a little bit about what some record stores are doing to adapt and survive right now? Sure. Yeah. So I think a lot of our stores across the country have been really creative. I mean, to Carrie's point, they're used to having to be very creative and nimble and reacting quickly. So a lot of the stores have obviously gone the delivery route and you know, some of our stores have even gotten super creative and they're doing like virtual shopping trips taking people on virtual trips through the store to then be able to do delivery. Obviously, a lot of online, you know, just trying to engage their customer via social media as well. Yeah. So I think, you know, for some stores, they've already been doing that. Some stores, this is a really sort of a new territory to be stepping into. But I think everybody is being pretty creative on that front. Definitely. And Carrie, Record Store Day did move. It moved to June 20th. It did. Which is great. I'm glad it's going to still happen. What's the thinking right now about how that's going to go? Well, originally it was supposed to be two days from now, three days from now, April 18th. (laughs) We would all be doing very different things right now if it was still happening. We did move it. And that was a decision that was difficult, but not difficult at the same time, if that makes sense, because there's so many elements and parts of Record Store Day and behind the scenes things that have to happen. And so many other businesses and artists and things that are affected and parts that have to work together in order to make it work. 
And all of those things have to, you know, distribution, stores, labels, artists, everything has to kind of flow and be able to flow. And so those decisions went into changing it to June 20th, whether June 20th sticks or not is going to depend on all those things. Are they able to flow? Are they able to work? What are we able to do? No matter what, Record Store Day 2020 is going to be weird and different and and not what it's been the past 12 years and probably not what it'll be in the future, but it'll be something. And it may even be the most important Record Store Day because it celebrates and shows the importance of those small businesses, what they do and what they bring to their community. So everything is still being looked at. It's really hard to make a decision for weeks, months in the future based on what we know right now, because day to day, we know different things. And day to day, we don't know the things we need to know. So all of that is being taken into consideration. Eric, do you want to talk a little bit about what you're hearing from your coalition members about the current state? Because, you know, this has been, I think, a month now that we've pretty much been all sheltering in place. And so things are definitely different today than they were four weeks ago when this started out. So do you have any sort of updates for us on what your folks are talking about? Yeah, I think that the curbside delivery was a new thing for all stores, and it's ended. You know, as the shelter-in-place orders have gone into place, but uh, they're all relying on e-commerce and doing a really good job of it. There's a strata of our stores that have always done well online, and they tend to be the younger stores who have programmed their own point-of-sale systems, programmed their websites. And then there's another strata in my store, Criminal Records, would be in that strata where yeah, we've never really done much. Dabbled with Discogs and eBay and Amazon, but our own personal sites, our presences, really needed to be ramped up. So I think you know, we've been all been learning on the fly and trying new things, but it's onerous. But it will be a great advantage when we reopen. You know, Everyone expects our sales volume to be down. That seems apparent for all industries. And it'll be a slow ramp up to normalcy. So having the additional online success is really going to be a help as we head towards reopening. You know, something that is not talked about, well, I mean, we talk about it a lot, but it's sort of the general public doesn't really understand the whole direct shot distribution situation that went on last year. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very crippling supply chain problem that is boring for people to read about, but it was very real in terms of its effects on the chain of supply of, of just getting records into record stores and available for customers. I'm assuming that this pandemic has not changed anything about that particular situation except to possibly make it worse. But I would like to hear some feedback from you three about what, have you noticed any changes? Has anyone been talking about that? Or has it been completely eclipsed? Because, you know, it's like, if we're going to have records store day on June 20th, we got to get records into the stores. Yeah. And even more important, you got to get records in on a regular basis. And we're not talking just about new releases, although those are crucial. You're talking about catalog orders and everything that people want to buy has to be brought into a record store. And I would disagree a little bit. If you were an outsider and I've had outsiders to the industry read through articles or listen to stories about the snowball that was the problem with direct shot and they find it fascinating that it could actually, that this is happening. This is the way it's happening. And this is what's actually going on in this industry. And to everyone's credit, it did seem like decisions were being made, changes were being put in place, things were being done, solutions tested. And maybe in the last two months, we would have said, yeah, things are fixed or, oh, this still has to get fixed. But to your point, we won't really necessarily know that. Stores obviously ordering less, bringing less in because they know they're going to be putting less out. Labels changing street dates. It's all still up in the air. It's hard to know. Yeah. I mean, it it might be that, you know, right now I would think for direct shot, this would be a great time since there is a dip in the volume and that sort of thing of what they're, you know, this would be a good time to be working out those kinks and, and figuring it out because I mean, that's kind of how I feel about this whole thing is like to Eric's point, I feel like right now the situation that we're in with 
COVID situation, I feel like it's really exposing a lot of people's weaknesses, but it's also kind of providing this area or space to strengthen those weaknesses. So, I mean, hopefully they're they're working out those solutions. Well, I was just going to say, I think a lot of the stores in my group are ordering more from AEC and AMS just for the ease. You know, it's worth the extra expenditure to maybe have it shipped to your house, maybe have it shipped at a specific time. So direct shot seems to be really far in the background because we're not ordering direct from Sony and we, uh, now that's not everybody, but the one size fits all solution of the one stops is useful and comforting in this day and age. Yeah. And I know that that was the solution that was sort of starting to happen towards the end of last year that people were going more to the one stops and finding that that was useful. Glenn, I wanted to switch over to you because I am really interested in this whole moving street dates around. It seems, and for those who do not understand the music industry, although I doubt that we have many of those people on this Zoom chat, you know, distributors work with labels and you connect the labels in their record stores and the other consumers. So you work with like, I think over 200 labels. I mean, you've got quite a big operation and you know, at the very beginning of this thing, it's like everybody suddenly was like, Ooh, we're pushing our street dates immediately. Like that was sort of the first thought is, Oh, we have to push street dates. But now I've seen people are actually putting street dates up. So, you know, bringing them closer. So, you know, what are you, what are you seeing with that? We're seeing a little bit of everything, actually. It was definitely, I mean, I think that initial shock kind of like froze people a little bit into, you know, just trying to figure out what was the best thing to do and, and having a lot of quick conversations with artists and managers and agents and just trying to figure out what, what was going to go down. So I think there was an initial sort of reaction to kind of hold back on certain things. But at the same time, from what we have seen with our partners is there was also a move to push things up as well to kind of try to keep feeding the, the indie stores with something that they could use and come up with creative ways to do different things that would be you know vital, I guess, when there was not much else going on. With record store day being moved, you know, most labels, at least that we work with, really try to make April a light month so that everybody could focus on record store day. Record stores would have budgets to be able to, to focus on that. So, you know, this was kind of a light month. So I think some labels looked at that as an opportunity to move some things into this month, maybe get a little more attention. So, you know, we've seen some positive things there. But, you know, I think people are trying to figure out different things to do with retail and to keep it rolling. There's lots of different things that people have come up with. But, you know, I think a lot of it is looking at your catalog and seeing what potential things could be put out in a a shorter window of time. But also looking at trying to come up with things maybe just for the indie stores. You know, we got word today that the Beggars Group was putting out Jamie XX, like 12-inch, 1,000 copies only, just to go to indie stores, no Amazon or one-stops. So, you know, it's things like that that we really are, are encouraging labels that we work with to do and keep a balance. You know, if something has to be moved because the, you know, we heard from one label that said, you know, one of the artist managers was pushing the tour or the agent was pushing a tour for a year down the road, which, you know, seems insane. You know, sometimes things like that really just create a really bad situation. So I think that that is something we have to be flexible about. Good answer. I want to know also, Glenn, have you heard of any labels sort of making lemonade out of this situation in terms of connecting with their fans on socials or doing, you know, different types of promo stuff? I, I love what you said about beggars, you know, doing some uh, indie store only. That's awesome. I would expect nothing less from them. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of really cool things that people are doing. I mean, uh, a lot of them don't involve indie retail or retail, but I mean, they're just trying to do things to kind of connect with their fans, keep them engaged, you know, when they were going to be having a new release and we're going to be on the road and now they're not. I was reading Real Estate is like doing this augmented kind of reality concert series called Quarantour. So there's a lot of people doing kind of these live streaming kind of events, which are you know, certainly getting some good attention and engaging people who have, you know, time on their hands, but also like Q and A's, just different live streaming kinds of things. I think I've seen a lot of people doing that sort of thing, which has been cool, but, you know, trying to look into doing like virtual in-stores 
And, you know, I think that that's something that we're going to be pushing more. We've done some stuff with, you know, rough trade. We've done like a in your room session kind of thing. I think more and more is, is emerging and people are actually looking for things to do, artists and whatnot. So, you know, I think that that's going to continue, but just people connecting with their fans is, is sort of the ongoing push right now, I think. Right. What I've seen with just the artists doing kind of like the live or the virtual in-stores, I think that's really great because just before we started the session, you know, we were all talking about missing being able to go to live shows. And I think that's a lot for people right now that they're stuck in their house, they're looking for that, you know, kind of idea of going out or being a part of a community. And so that I think really helps to give, you know, fill that void for right now. Definitely. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like one of the real benefits has been that this is some people's first time seeing an artist in a really stripped down setting. Yeah. You know, but like, I think that drives people's understanding of like the artistry, right? Because sometimes I think people are like, oh, you go to a show because it's going to be a big arena spectacle. But the truth is, you know, when they're playing by themselves, possibly in their pajamas in their bedroom, it's a, it's such a different experience. And I think it's a great new way for people to connect with art. You know, I've been going to see some of my favorite artists playing and it's just like, it's, it feels so special, right? It feels like I'm so excited to get to see these people. Not that I would wish that this would happen, but it's worked out all right in this one way. I would be remiss if I didn't point out right there that except for the pajama part and actually they're free to wear their pajamas, but that's pretty much what a lot of in-stores at record stores are is a a really, really up close and personal, intimate, stripped down, different way of looking at the artists and the music. So yeah. Very good point. It makes me think of the last time Cindy Wilson, we put, I put out a Cindy Wilson record when I was running Kill Rockstars and she did an in-store at Waterloo. And it was like, the show was 20 minutes and the line was four hours yeah. because people got to talk to her. You know, they got to come up, take her hand and talk to her about, you know, her 30 years of B-52 stuff. And it was just like so special for people. So yeah, in-stores, very important. was Girl Germs by Bratmobile. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Carrie Colleton of Record Store Day, Andrea Pascal of Sims, Eric Levin of Ames, Glenn Dicker of Red Eye, Mark Kaplan of Citrin Cooperman, and Monica Tashman of Manat. So, of course, record stores are small businesses and independent labels are small businesses. So one of the things we wanted to talk about today was there is some relief out there from the government in the form of these SBA loans for small businesses. And that's why I asked both Monica and Mark to come on so that you guys could give us some like true perspective on 
best practices and when you're filling out your loan application and, you know, how are we supposed to do this in a way that works? Mark, you guys have on your website, this really cool thing. That's basically like an assessment, you know, like assess your situation. And I think that's incredible because a lot of small businesses, you know, like indie labels, like indie retail stores, I don't think we've experienced that necessarily. Well, I will admit that was put together by a bunch of guys in the office and I'm more of a business manager dealing with music clients. So we've been looking at it more in terms of our clients, but also, you know, in terms of, let's say, what's happening in in the environment in the indie store market. So there are a couple situations, you know, we've all heard about the various ones. There's an immediate small business grant. There's these PPP loans, which has been the big thing over the last two weeks. That's this $349 billion SBA loan, which hopefully everybody is looking at. If you had employees, there are unemployment options for employees who were paid on W-2 wages. And there are other loans that just got announced by the Fed called the Main Street Program, but those are for loans over a million dollars. The big one that is attractive to everybody, certainly in, in situations where you've had employees that you've had to lay off, which is the PPP loans, Payroll Protection Program, which is the idea that you could go out and borrow up to two and a half times of your average payroll costs to basically bring people back to work and employ them or pay them during the next two months. And if you use that money for qualified payroll costs and for some additional costs like rent and utilities on your space, then you could find that virtually all of that loan will be forgiven. You won't have to pay it back and you won't have to pay tax on the loan being forgiven. That's been the big scramble over the last two weeks because they opened it up to businesses on April 3rd. And from our experience, we found that our specific bank that we use in California and a lot of bands, a lot of people use, Smaller bank has been great at being able to get those applications through, whereas bigger banks announced holdbacks, announced they ran out of room, things like that. So that's been tough, as well as as it led up to it being very difficult to try to interpret what the law actually said. And there were a lot of different thoughts about what you could and couldn't include that didn't really get sorted out until after they opened up for applications. So... And I read today that they've used up about 70% of the money so far, but Congress is rumbling as though they'll add $250 billion to that total. So that does feel as though there's still opportunities to go out and get those loans if you haven't done it yet. If you are looking at that one, though, you do need to do it in conjunction with your bank. So ideally, you have some level of banking relationship and are not just have to fill out an application online and hope someone calls you. Monica, do you want to get involved here? I think Manat also has an amazing thing on their website, sort of a guide to dealing with this exact situation. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I think it's helpful to sort of set the framework for the CARES Act. You know, first of all, the SBA has been around for 67 years, right? And what the CARES Act did is sort of expand the offerings for the Small Business Association. So the Small Business Association has always had a number of loans that were available to small businesses. This is just something that's an expansion for the COVID-19 situation. The thing that Mark was talking about that we're calling PPP, the, the reason for it, right, is to encourage employers to retain their employees, right? That's the number one reason. That's And that's an important thing to sort of keep in mind when you're figuring out whether or not it's for you, right? And it really comes down to having a strategy because in addition to the PPP, there's also a lot of new unemployment benefits that are available and then other programs that are available. And so you sort of have to come up with a strategy to decide which program should I do? It would be better for me to lay off some of my employees so that they can collect unemployment with the additional federal increase in unemployment benefits, or is it better for me to take out the PPP? you know, and sort of keep them retained. Now, there's lots of rules around the PPP. And I'll say that it's both very complicated and very simple. When you were to look at the application online, it looks very simple. But I mean, as of yesterday, this was the third installment of regulations and clarifications 
since it was, you know, put into effect on April 3rd. So think about that, right? It's obviously very complicated <laughs> considering how much explanation has to be done for a very simple application. The first thing is eligibility, deciding whether or not you're eligible. And on its face, it looks really simple. But as we dig into things with you know, music-related businesses, it tends to be a little bit more complicated, right? The first question is, you know, were you, an, you know, were you a, an ongoing concern, you know, as of you know February fifteenth of twenty twenty? That's that's an easy one to answer. But did you have employees that you paid salaries to, and what was the annualized salary, right? Well, sometimes in the music business, we have people that we, especially for bands, I'm sure Mark can speak to that. You know, that we only have employed for a certain number of months, right? You know, the, the other issue is, you know, residency, which is pretty simple. But then the other question is substantially impacted by COVID-19. Obviously, for music businesses, it's very easy to say touring, right, is, is substantially impacted. This is all canceled. And certainly retail is substantially impacted. But there's lots of shades of gray in there, like for record companies. Do we know right now how substantially impacted they have been? We, we don't know just yet right? Because it's, it's happening in real time, <laughs> you know, week after week of getting statistics of what where sales are. So it does require some analysis to dig into it. And it's important to get it right. Because I don't, I don't mean to get too much into the weeds, but I can talk about this literally for two hours. <laughs> A lot of people would want you to Monica, because I <laughs> Well, a lot of people when faced with form, it's like standardized tests, you know, you're just like, ah, you just freeze. But Mark, I wanted to ask you, do you, have you seen any feedback? I mean, do you, have any of your clients actually received any of these monies or? Well, Monica brought up some very good points that the rules on the PPP has changed a lot and it is both complicated and simple. And the, the positive reality is, is that, you know, unlike most SBA programs, you don't have to go through a lot of hoops to prove that you're eligible or anything like that. She is right. You are supposed to certify that you've been impacted by COVID-19. And I can tell you that in the conversations with all the people that have come to me and talked about it, everybody feels that they've been impacted. The interesting part about the PPP loan is the forgiveness on the back end. And the reality is none of us know what those rules are yet because of the rules on the front end that we were all going all kinds of different ways. I mean, my firm, we spent a whole week parsing over every single word that came out to go, but wait a minute, what about this? And what about that? And then the treasury came out on like the day of the announcement and shot down most of that in a positive way for everybody. So I do feel that we're going to see some interesting on the back end. I think politically on the back end, it's going to end up all being forgiven. I don't think anybody is going to go to some of what the actual law says, and we could once again talk for hours about that and still not have an answer. But Monix is also right. You really want to look at what's best. But the really great thing about this PPP loan is that one, you don't have to do any real qualification. What the banks are submitting is a very simple looking application, and it will depend on your bank as to how much backup they really want or how they're even, I don't even think that necessarily looking at calculations that closely. We didn't get questioned on any of ours. And we've been told that most have been approved, but we've yet to see the paperwork and the flow of funds. And as Monica said, the SBA has been around for many years and has never had to deal with anything like this. So it's almost amazing. I will say truthfully, it, it was the first couple of days, ooh, I was like, this is not going to work. But now hearing about approvals and stuff, I'm going, yeah, there's a shot at it. And I do believe that Congress will come with more money. And I do believe it's something every small business should look at. But Monica, you're right. Unemployment, they've granted an extra $600 a week to anyone, no matter what level of unemployment they get for the next four months. So literally, your lower paid employees could make more money going on employment than working for you. You want to retain them. What we don't know is what will happen when all that goes away because then they go, hey, I'm not going to work for you. But nonetheless, you look at what works for you. But I would truthfully put in a PPP application no matter what because the worst thing that happens is you didn't need all the money and you pay it back. And if you have to pay it back, you, right now I believe it's over two years because I didn't read what happened yesterday, Monica. 
we haven't even had a chance to digest it because it, it came out like yesterday afternoon. But I'll say this, you, you do have to weigh, right? It, it, everything in law, right? You, you know, you have to, you have to sort of weigh. Absolutely. But let's just be clear, right? If you answer something incorrectly or do something inadvertent, that's one thing, right? If doing something knowingly, that's something else. And the last thing you want to do is have inconsistencies between your SBA application and your tax filing. And that really makes things really complicated because with 2019 being pushed off and most of us having not done it since it got pushed off, you know, some of the things that you are required to provide as far as your business expenses and, and whatnot, when you're filing your taxes, you're hoping to keep as much of your money as you can and, you know, take out as much of your expenses as you can. But that sort of cuts against you when you're doing an SBA loan and, you know, may end up, you know, with let's just say $100,000 of income, $50,000 of expenses, and now your your payroll is 50000 instead of a hundred. You have to have those things consistent. And that's why I keep saying like there has to be a strategy. You know, there has to be a strategy when you're doing it and you have to think it all the way through, especially because some things have been relaxed and some things haven't. But there is already chatter about when we get to the other side of this, depending on you know, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, who's going to go after who for fraud <laughs> and whether they will, the IRS will come after you or the SBA will come after you. It's just, it's complicated. So you just want to be careful, right? Which is why we did this practical guide and we continue to update it. We'll probably have another update, hopefully Friday, but maybe Monday. And, you know, we continue to put out guidelines and things on the Manat site to, you know, to help as many people as we can. I'll say that in music, you know, I think we have some unique issues because it's straightforward for retailers, but I will say for some clients that have multiple entities, right? Are they applying for, they're applying for a PVP loan for each entity or are they applying for only one time and what's considered to be a holistic business as opposed to, you know, subsidiaries of that business. And so much of that depends on how the businesses were set up to begin with. And that might've happened 10, 15 years ago without ever a thought of what might happen in a pandemic with the government, you know, coming up with a couple of trillion dollars to help in grants. So, yeah. Let me ask the retail folks here, Andrea, Eric, and Carrie, have you guys heard from your stores some specific concerns or questions about the application process for these different loans? I got off a conference call with the Department of Record Stores members about an hour and a half before this call. We basically have a call every week so that they can get together and share frustrations and concerns. And the last, I think, three have been about loans and applications and grants and what can we do and what can't we do. And it's very interesting because in that coalition, you have multiple storefront chains, large ones, Dia, Bull Moose, but then you also have, you know, kind of single proprietor stores. So it's a mix and it's it's very interesting to go back to Mark's experience of the, I think, 12 people on the call, two of them had not yet been able to apply and had just received word from their bank yesterday that, okay, now you're able to apply. So they hadn't even been able to apply. Three of them had been approved and one of them had already gotten their money. And the three that had been approved went through local credit unions or small banks. And in fact, in two cases, when they went in to say, hey, we want to talk about this, they went, oh, we shop at your store. We love you guys. And then the others were almost all to a T, giant national banks. Now, that's not to say that if I was a bank, I wouldn't have been prepared for this either because I, I feel really bad for the banks, which sounds weird to say, but they kind of got this all dropped on them and then everybody went to them at once. But it does seem like the smaller local guys are able to handle this and, and get it done. And it seems like that's going faster. Yeah, there was an article I read today about that. And like I said, from our experience, I think the big banks also got caught up in the beginning of trying to figure out well what actually qualifies and worried about their liability. Whereas the smaller banks and the local banks, they know the guys they're working with and they saw this as an immediate way to help people. So I think it will, you know, once again, it's an unprecedented program and an unprecedented time, but politically, you know, they want it to be successful, which I think work in everybody's direction. There's nobody out there who's going to, there's no congressman or senator in my mind who's going to vote against coming up with more money for the program. And I do agree with Monica. There's 
You have to be careful. I mean, the short answer is if you have under 500 employees, you're eligible. The possibility that later with the IRS or later with the SBA, there's always that possibility. And if you're going for a $10 million loan, the odds are more likely somebody's going to look at you. And I won't deny that I've had some conversations with people who went, well, wait a minute, you know, I lost that tour. Oh, but I wasn't going to make any money on that tour. And I have to go, you have a lot of money in the bank. Do you really feel that you need this more than someone else who doesn't? And it can go all ways. Look at it from their particular point of view. But I would say that, yes, if I'm speaking to the indie community and the indie record store community and you were paying your employees, you want to look at wages. So you paid unemployment insurance for them. You want to help them look at that. And you want to look at the PPP loan. Once again, the worst thing that happens is you have to pay it back. And it's at 1% interest and you get to borrow it for two years. So if you don't use it for all of the qualified or what get defined ultimately as the qualified expenses, you either pay it back right then if you have it, or you're going to have two years to pay it off. And I think if you feel that it can help you keep your business going, you should be seriously looking at it. And I did notice that somebody came up with a question and I mentioned and you know that the smaller bank worked. So we got to we had an officer that we could give the info to and they input it to the SBA. But if you're at Wells Fargo or Chase or Bank of America, they have some kind of online portal for you to put your application in at. And once again, I would say to everyone with a business with employees, you should put in an application. You can always decide at a future point whether you want the funds if they provide them, and I'm sure you would take them. And then later on, you can decide whether you're going to pay them back. But you need to keep careful records of exactly how you spent that money, and you need to be paying it mostly to your employees. As Monica said, there's some expenses that can go on top of that, but really they basically say that we don't expect more than 25% of that loan to go for those expenses. So I can say that there are situations where we probably have applied for more money than will be forgiven, but money that's necessary to help keep things going. And therefore, the real issue on the defrauding part of it is at the end, if you try to fake your numbers to balance your forgiveness. And nobody yet knows how that's going to get figured out because it's most likely going to be on the shoulders of the banks to certify. was Cherry Bomb by Bratmobile. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts.
You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Carrie Colleton of Record Store Day, Andrea Pascal of Sims, Eric Levin of Ames, Glenn Dicker of Red Eye, Mark Kaplan of Citrin Cooperman, and Monica Tashman of Manat. Let me ask you guys a quick question, just from a really basic standpoint. When I went and looked at the PPP loan application, you're right, it looks very simple, but then you get to the end and it asks for certain tax documents to be uploaded. And like you touched on, Monica, like many people haven't actually done there, even though today is April 15th. What a, <laughs> what a coincidence. You know, a lot of people haven't done their taxes for this year, so they don't actually have that tax document. So my question is, how afraid should people be as a rule that if you don't have the exact documents they're asking for, that you're not even going to get looked at? Do you know what I mean? That's what I would be concerned about if I were a small business. I would just be like, well, I don't have exactly what they're asking for. I have these other documents. Should I just upload the other documents and be like, this is what I have for them? Or, you know, if it's not perfect, should we not do it? Listen, I mean, there's there's a lot of element of good faith, right? You know, you you want to have good faith and you want to be consistent. And, you know, it probably my advice would probably be if you're putting in that information for the SBA loan, you should probably have that be consistent when you file your taxes. And that should be the sort of the guiding force when you file your taxes. Because the, the point of this is not to cause more problems for yourself, right? It's to help. Can I just briefly just talk about the EIDL because there's another element to the SBA. Just really quickly. Please. So the EIDL is set up for, for a different reason, right? It's not to retain employees, right? It's to help to sort of make people whole on their revenue, right? It's just, it's, it's a little bit of money. It's, it's up to $10,000. It's not that much, but it, it's supposed to be sort of like a bridge during this really difficult time. Unfortunately, the EIDL is unbelievably not well-funded and not well staffed. So unlike the PPP, it's actually being run by the SBA. And the SBA is not used to getting 5 million applications on a single day. (laughs) It's very difficult. And so they've sort of just to deal with the influx, they've actually sort of taken the position that, you know, most things will be about $1,000 per employee. They've sort of changed the benchmark on it. There is discussion about, you know, increasing funding and certainly increasing the amount of staffing that they have. But that's supposed to be a really quick loan, almost like an emergency. It is an emergency loan. To, you're supposed to get it within three days of application. I can tell you that people have been waiting three weeks for, <laughs> for it to come in. So nothing's working exactly as they'd like it to. But there are other programs there as well. And in addition to that advance of that $10,000, you can also apply for a bigger loan, right? So you retain the $10,000 as a $10,000 advance on that loan. You could apply for more. That process takes a little bit longer. But even if you don't get more money, you can retain that $10,000 and it's forgiven. Okay, so you get to keep it. Awesome. I want to address a question that was asked on the Q&A page. Glenn, I think you might be in good shape to be the person who talks a little bit about this. This person asked... Would you say that this is a time that artists and managers should be looking at the catalog of artists and trying to be creative about exploring ways to exploit catalog pieces that may actually be in stock at stores? I think that's an interesting way to support both artists, labels, and stores. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, as far as stuff that's already in stock at stores, yeah, I mean, it's probably great to do anything you can to help sell that through so they can bring in more stuff. But I mean, I think what we've been talking to people about at least is looking at the catalog and seeing if there are things that you can mine from it that somehow you can turn around quickly. I mean, I think the problem that we're all facing too is just the, you know, manufacturing is is sort of shuttered in a lot of places. So that that's created a whole other sort of backlog issue and uncertainty. So even if people have really great ideas about things that we can put into the market quickly, it's hard to do it without being able to manufacture it necessarily. So yeah, I mean, I think you know, trying to find existing things that you have already, whether it be in the warehouse or, you know, in your garage or whatever the case may be as a label, you know, certainly looking at ways to kind of help promote that. And, you know, some of the things we're looking at is just doing some basic stuff, like trying to do a mass sale to be able to to push stuff out there across the board and have people go out and really promote it as a way to drive traffic to uh, your favorite community record store, you know? I know on the Record Store Day website, you guys have a link to all the stores that are doing various things. Do you guys have a link to the stores that have online options? We do. We have a form that the stores can fill out and it's updated daily. 
So the stores, you know, as their situations change, as they're no longer, as Eric said, they may have been doing curbside pickup and then orders come down and you can no longer do curbside pickup or you find that, oh, wait, I can go and if I have two employees at a time and they're six feet apart, I can fill orders. So, okay, I can do this. We have a grid on our website that lists the store name with a link to their page on Record Store Day so you can get their contact information. And it says, are they doing regular hours? Can you walk into that store and shop? Can you do curbside? Can you do online shipping? All of that is there because we want labels and artists to do just what Glenn is saying, just to, to go online and to talk about their records in their collection. And really, we want everybody to do it. This is the time we're spending the most time with our record collections <laughs> or CD collections or whatever collections. Talk to us about it online. Tell people what is great in your collection and where you got it and send people to record stores. And we have that list on our site of which stores are able to do which things. And I know there's a lot of stores on this listening, a lot of participants who are from stores, and we want them to continue to update that so that when people are sending people to record store day to find their store, it's the most updated information. And they can they can go shop with you online or give you a call to have something shipped or whatever you want. One of the things we're, we're doing is looking at trying to take some things into that sort of indie-only atmosphere where we can just have some things kind of get a pre-order situation through the online options and then take all those online options that are going to be involved in the pre-order and then the artists can post those things out to their communities and then people will know exactly where they can go to get them and it could be their favorite local record store or if it's not in a place where they can do it to a local store they can go to somewhere else you know i think that People are going to kind of adapt quickly to this, I think. You know, we want to continue to put stuff out there. People have to put records out. So I think people are going to really begin to push more and more on that. I mean, everybody wants to see this community continue to be there, you know, for communities, but for also music fans especially. And I think everybody has to just get creative and think about how we can, you know, push people to that sector. Andrea, can you talk a little bit about the importance of pre-orders for people's business? Because I think I feel like right now is a great time to show solidarity with indie record stores by buying, you know, vinyl. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's helpful for the stores too, because it takes the pressure off of them. They're able to gauge that demand. And I I would say with labels as well, you know, we're all having to be strategic right now. So from the manufacturing, what kinds of runs you're doing, I know for some pressing plants, it's actually easier for them to do smaller runs right now because, you know, with the staffing and everything, and that's an easier turnaround. So I think those pre-orders are really helpful in gauging that demand. And again, not having the store have to do the guesswork of trying to, to pick that magic number of what to buy because their resources are extremely limited right now. But yeah, I think pre-orders are great and it's just a great way because the artists can get behind it as well. They can help to put that message out and drive the traffic to indie record stores. And it really can tell a full story. You know, the artists can participate, the labels can participate, the stores obviously can participate. And then you've got that music community that's that's supporting everybody by making that pre-order purchase. Uh, pre-orders are difficult. I can't say that there's a large penetration within the game stores that have pre-order capabilities. There are some solutions like uh, John Berger's Broad Time that address it. I know AEC and AMS have dropship capabilities that are that are growing, but it's sophisticated programming to get pre-orders where they need to be. My own store, we don't have pre-orders. Kind of like I said earlier, a lot of us are ramping up, kind of entering the online field for the first time. That's uh, great for the consumer and great for the artist, but it's it's very difficult very difficult proposition. Yeah, it's a challenge for sure. But I I wonder if that's not one of the silver linings of this horrible situation is that a lot of times we have to change our business practices, but it's going to maybe help in the long run. There's one more question I wanted to give to Carrie before we're done, which was asked on the chat, which was if stores are still not allowed to open by June 20th, is there any talk about doing virtual record store day or would you just push it? I don't know that we would ever go full virtual. It's it's just antithetical to what Record Store Day is. I'm going to go back to a phrase I used earlier, which is that this year is weird. And Record Store Day is going to be different and a little weird. 
and you know who knows what may change but i'm i'm fairly certain that an online record store day first of all it's worldwide and even in the us there are over 1200 stores and you have to be as fair to, as possible to all those stores and the magic that lets us all come together and do this call the internet that's difficult to do if you open things up to online to be fair to record stores we are about the brick and mortar record store we're not about a specific format. We're not even about vinyl. We're about the record stores, the brick and mortar record stores. So our overall goal, no matter what decisions are made, is made with those record stores in mind and being as fair as possible to as many as possible. Yeah. I mean, that day really is about, I mean, obviously there's tons of co-releases that come out on that day, but what the whole event was based around was celebrating record stores record store cultures and communities. So it does feel like we're all being forced to do that in a virtual world to a point right now, but I think that's not the end game for sure. Well, we're pretty much out of time. I did want to mention that there've been a couple of online initiatives like that hashtag love record stores, and then this new fill the gap initiative, which just launched, which are, I think, great ways to try to support your local record stores. And I would encourage people to check those out. And, you know, artists, anything, if you can post yourself supporting a record store. And actually, I've seen actors doing it. I've seen all sorts of people doing it. So it definitely seems like something that's great to just bring more attention to the fact that this is happening. On that note, I would like to thank everybody so much for being with me today. You guys were awesome. And I know that everyone watching really appreciated it. So thank you very much. And we'll see you next time. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Bratmobile and, of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was recorded via Zoom and in my closet and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. Stay safe, wash your hands, and I'll see you next week.